Tonight, the Australian people have voted for change. I am humbled by this victory, and I'm honoured to be given the opportunity to serve as the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. Hello and welcome to episode 81 of Ballot to Talk About. It is Saturday, the 28th of May, 2022. And joining me, as always, from the other side of the globe, is my co-host, Sam. Well, Sam, it is coming up to the Platinum Jubilee weekend, the long weekend. Any plans for yourself? Um, not particularly, other than uh, I'm hoping to catch a glimpse of Trooping the Colour, which... Uh... Every year that I've been in London, I have tried to go to see, um, and obviously because of various events around the world, that's not been the case for the last couple of years, so I'm hoping to go there. And um, yeah, and then I'm actually going to Lords to see the cricket on the Sunday, which will be exciting, but other than that, just enjoying the double pay, to be honest. <laughs> oh, I can absolutely imagine, but uh, enjoy a day at the cricket, and I hope for your sake it's not a washout, which... You never know, really, English weather. Yeah, but, well, I think um, the biggest threat is not the rain. It's just the fact that England might not make it to day four. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of teams that haven't gotten a fourth goal at the turn, that could be said about Scott Morrison's Liberal National Coalition. And this week, we'll be reviewing Australia's general election, where it turns out that the picture is, frankly, much more complex than the initial results suggest. But as I said earlier, the headline result is that there has been a change in government with Labour leader Anthony Albanese, which you heard in the introduction um, was part of his absence uh, of his victory speech, sworn in last Monday as Australia's 31st Prime Minister, replacing Scott Morrison, who has also stood down as Liberal Party leader. We should note at this stage that his, his replacement has not been elected, but is widely understood to be former Defence Minister Peter Dutton. And there is still some uncertainty about whether Labour Anthony Albanese can win a majority government. So, Sam, let's start with the basics. So we're recording this at 9.14am in the United Kingdom and 5.14 here in Singapore. What are the results at this point in time? Yeah, so with three seats still in doubt of the 151 seats in the Australian House of Representatives, we currently stand with Labour on 75 seats, which is an increase of eight, and the Coalition on 57 seats, which is down 18. Uh, now, some of the big other winners include the Green Party, who have gained three seats to finish on four, having just declared Brisbane this morning. Um, the One Nation Party remain on zero seats and the Others column, which mostly includes some of our Teal Independents who we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, has increased by seven seats to 12 and gaining overall 10.4% of the first preference vote, which is quite a big percentage for a group of um, local independents. Currently in doubt are Deacon, Gilmore and McNamara. Now we're expecting both Deacon and Gilmore to eventually fall into the Liberal column to finish them on 59 seats. And at the moment it's looking like McNamara will fall into the Labour column, giving them the 76 seats that are required 
for a one-seat majority. Um, but there is an outside chance that McNamara actually falls into the Green Party's column, which is not as big of a concern for Labour because Greens tend to be on their side in voting, but it would be a big hit to their um, hopes of gaining a majority if they were to finish just one seat short of a majority on 75. But at the moment, it is looking like McNamara will go in the direction of the Labour Party, bringing them to 76. Now, the overall two-party preference vote at the moment sits on around 51.6% for Labour and 48.4% for the Coalition, which is an increase of 3.1% for Labour, putting them in first place in the two-party preference votes um, from 2019. Now, over in the Senate, just to give a bit of a rundown, but there are even more seats still to declare here, but the current picture as we see it is that the coalition set likely to gain 14 seats out of the 40 seats up for election this time around. Labour likely to have 15, the Greens likely to have 6, and the One Nation, Jackie Lambie Network and David Pocock likely to have won one seat each, with two further seats completely undecided. So it's looking like there will be a progressive majority in the Senate after this election has taken place. So... Chen, all in all, were you surprised at that set of results? Now, I think some of the headline results, I wasn't particularly surprised. I think we did say that we did expect Labour to fall over the line. We both gave a prediction of 78 seats in our preview podcast. So 76 is a slight undercount of that. But I'm not sure if you agree with me, Sam. I think some of the individual stories in many of the seats uh, beneath the surface are very interesting indeed. And this turned out as I said in the introduction, to be a much more complex election. Uh, I don't think we'll be talking a lot about the Senate, but I think some of the senators, Senate results are very interesting as well. Particularly, I would like to bring out the Senate result in the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory. In most states, there are six Senates up for grabs, but in the territories, there are only two. And since the territories got Senate representation in the 70s, they've always elected one Labour and one Liberal number. Now, at this election in the ACT, that has finally been broken. Labour's Katie Gallagher has been elected and she's been sworn in in interim ministry as finance minister. And the other seat has gone to David Pocock, who is actually a former Wallabies uh, rugby captain and who has successfully ousted uh, Conservative Zetsa Zelja from that seat. So it's a historic result. And I think it points to a wider trend of both major parties falling and independence gaining because we are sitting here and there is a new Labour government, but I'm still surprised, Sam, I'm not sure about you, and this could be a good starting point, that Labour's primary vote now, right as of recording, is 32.7%. That's down half a percentage point. In terms of share of the vote, this is not a ringing mandate, isn't it? Even though in seats, they have gotten there, haven't they? Yeah, I, I think it's a good point to point that out. And before I talk about Labour a bit more extensively, I think it's worth noting that the the share of the vote between the two major party groups, the Labour Party and the Coalition, it stands at 68.9%, which is an all-time low for the combined share of these parties who just 50, 60 years ago were polling nearly 98% of the vote in Australia. So... I think one of the reasons that we see a fall in the Labour vote and the coalition vote quite substantially is just the increase in support for these independents and third parties in Australia, which is something that 
they've not particularly been used to. So in the context of the Green Party getting nearly 12% of the vote and the Independents getting over 10% of the vote, actually the Labour... The Labour sustaining their vote pretty much, but losing just 0.5% of the vote actually seems a pretty good result um, compared to what was going on across the rest of the primary vote. Um, And the coalition, obviously, they lost over 5% of the vote. So compared to the coalition, they came out of this reasonably well. But I do agree with you that given where we were in opinion polling in the build-up to this day, these results are not exactly what Labour was hoping for, um, particularly on the primary election vote and then even in the two-party preference. We talked about how in the past in Australia there's usually been about a 1-2% to 2% error um, overestimate of the Labour vote, which seems to have pretty much materialised in the two-party preference overall. But certainly the primary vote seemed not um, where we were expecting it to fall and that seems to have disadvantaged both houses but um, surprisingly Labour as well. Well just a quick note on the primary vote is that I think in certain seats that there was a lot of tactical voting particularly in those teal seats where Labour was not really in with a shout. So if we remove let's say Curtin, Kuyong, Goldstein, Wentworth, Warringah and McKellar those were six seats that were gained by the teal independents which we'll come to talk about. The Labour vote nationally increased was actually at 33.3%, which is roughly the same as 2019. So that slight decline is actually driven by a large fall in Labour voters voting for these so-called teal independents. But nonetheless, the fact that they held even from 2019, which they lost, and not made any further advancement from a government that's three years older, I think in itself tells an interesting story. Don't you think so, Sam? Yeah, I think it is one of the many stories coming out for this election. To me, I think there's three big stories. One is on the surface, the Labour win, which is the first Labour victory since 2007. And then I think we also have a story of Labour not doing as well as they should have done in terms of if they're overturning a government. And then I think the final story is the hemorrhaging of the coalition vote all over the place. And really, I think if we were looking at the surface of these results, one of the reasons why it was very clear very early on that Labour were going to form the next election, even if we weren't at that point sure that they were going to get a majority, is just because of how many seats the coalition lost and it just left them with absolutely no path to government at all. So even if Labour was going to finish this election on 71, 72 seats, they would still be forming the government because the coalition had no path to government at all. And I think that's a big story here, potentially even more so than the story we're telling about Labour's fortunes. Oh, I absolutely think so. I think it was very clear on the coalition could not form majority government in Australia what, or any government at point whatsoever early on. But it's the last few days I've seen Labour inching towards the line. And we should note as well that 76 seats in the lower house of our parliament of 151, you have 76 government MPs, 75 on the opposition bench or cro- and cross bench combined. Don't forget that Labour still has to appoint a speaker. The speaker usually goes to whoever forms government. So that means that technically on the floor of parliament, it's a tied vote. Now, obviously, there's one way around it, which is to appoint a crossbencher to the seat of parliament. And that could give Labour a majority on the floor. 
But most of the newly elected independents have said that they do not want to become speaker. So potentially Andrew Wilkie is a long-term independent. He's been there. He's been just re-elected his fourth term, might take up the speakership. And he's also allied with the progressives in, in the parliament, but that remains to be seen. So I think governing in the lower house will be not as easy as the necessary, even though they technically have a majority. But in the Senate, I think the picture does look a bit better. You saw in the Senate, as you said, that the Greens will now have 12 seats and they're quite influential bloc. And I think Labour with the Greens and David Polkart together, they hold 39 seats, 40 seats, which is enough for majority. So I think the picture in the Senate was better than Labour hope, but I think in the lower house, there could it is not out of the woods yet. But Anthony Albanese, don't forget, was leader of the house from 2010 to 2013. During the period there was, in the Gillard government, there was a hung parliament. So he's been there and had to negotiate independence. So I don't think that would be too much of a problem in trying to get their legislation through. Do you agree with that assessment, Sam? No, I, I completely agree with that assessment. And I think the, the thing we've got to note in the lower house particularly as well is that you obviously have the expected four Green MPs who are likely to vote for most things Labour put on the table, whether it be social or fiscal policy. Um, and then if you're going down a more route of um, environmental politics, which I think will be a large focus of this next term of government, you're probably going to be able to bring some of those teal independents along with you as well. So really, even if Labour does end up in a situation where they appoint a speaker of their own and finish on 75 seats, I think in reality, the parliament is not 50-50 um, in terms of who's going to vote for those policies. But I do completely see your point that that in combination with where we have the Senate seems to be a relatively positive picture for Albanese. But um, I do think that the lower house, when you drill into the numbers a bit further, seems a little bit more secure from, for Labour than the overall numbers would suggest. So let's break down that Labour victory right now. We talked about whether it's a disappointment, we, and I suspect they're relieved to be back in government after nine years. We talked about the ability to pass legislation. Let's break down Saturday night, Sam. What do you think were the key ingredients that have led Labour to return to power? Yeah, I think that is the key question here. And I think a, a subliminal focus of that question is, is it Labour ingredients that return them to power or does it have something to do with the other side? Because I, I talked the, when we did the preview about how the differential between Albanese's popularity and Scott Morrison's popularity gave a narrow favourability to the Labour leader, which I think did play a large role here because ultimately in parliamentary democracies like this, and we see this in the UK as well, if your leader is more popular than the other party's leader, that tends to give you a slight advantage. And in this election, which the whole time for the campaign was seen as one that might be quite tight in terms of there's a lot of marginal seats on the table, there's a lot of other candidate factors playing here which could have marginal differences to vote preference. If your party holds the narrow lead in terms of the leadership and pre preferred prime minister question, you're in a good position. And Labour had that going for them in this election, which I think in, in a tight election like this cannot be understated as to why Labour were able to just get over the line into government. But I think one of the bigger things here for Labour ingredients is that 
if the coalition were to stay in government, they needed to win big because we knew there were some seats that were going to guarantee fall away from the Liberal column as well as the threat from independence. So if the coalition were going to remain in government, they needed to have a really good night or they would fall short. And as I said before, Labour was able to form a government so quickly because the coalition fell so short. And if I were to pinpoint states in Australia where I think Labour were carried over the line, Western Australia, absolutely, because they had a a huge night in Western Australia where they picked up four seats and it was one of the only places in Australia where there was a big swing towards the Labour Party where we saw the Labour Party vote actually increase so I think there should be a lot of thanks going to Mark McGowan and the state um, infrastructure of the Labour Party because if it weren't for those wins in Western Australia we might have a bit of a different picture going on here because those four seats made the difference between being very close or just on the majority than having to negotiate with another party. So I think that's a big story. And the second big story, I think, is that they held on in New South Wales. And that was where we thought that there might be quite a few liberal gains off the Labour Party. And actually, they kept the liberal gains off the Labour Party to probably just one, which is the seat of Gilmore that we'll be probably seeing declared in the coming days. But We had, as we talked about last time, there was pre-selection chaos for the Liberal Party where a lot of their candidates were picked very late. Um, And it stopped the coalition making advances in New South Wales, which may not have changed who was leading the government, but again, could have denied Labour a majority. So I think the ingredients for them were big wins in Western Australia, holding on in New South Wales, and that narrow edge that Albanese had over Scott Morrison in the preferred Prime Minister polling. So that's where I see it. Do do you have any thoughts, Chern? I think you're absolutely right that um, on on all those factors, actually. But uh, I have some statistics here in a minute that I'll explain where I think, which I think points to that, to some of the other demographic factors. But for me, Western Australia was absolutely the difference between a narrow Albanese majority government and no and have, having a much more difficult position. And I cannot look further than the seat of Tangni. Now, in Western Australia, it was largely expected that Swan was gone and Pierce was gone. The Labour Party is very hopeful in Hasler. And they thought Tangni, well, if we had a good night, we could get Tangni. Well, I can tell you that Western Australian Labour have taken all four seats and all four of them on double-digit swings. I mean, in Pierce, which was held by former Attorney General Christian Porter, the swing from Liberal to Labour was 14.3%. This is an enormous swing in peers. And in Tangney, now Tangney has not voted for Labour since 1984. That was the last, last voted for Labour for one term in 1983, and it last voted Labour for one term in 1974. Well, Ben Morton, who is a very close ally of former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, the Minister for the Public Service, he lost 10% of the primary vote. And Labour candidate is Sam Lim, who has increased his vote by 10%. Now, this is one of those candidates with a very interesting backstory. He only came to Australia about less than 20 years ago. He is an award-winning police officer. And Sam, I think two interesting facts I thought that were about this candidate is that he can speak 10 languages which I find astonishing. I can't even speak one and two, let alone 10. 
And Sam, although he was a police officer, in one of his previous lives, he was a dolphin trainer. And I think this is the, obviously the first dolphin trainer to be elected to Australian Parliament. What a story, isn't it? Yeah, that is a great story. Um, and I think just as you said, I, Western Australia clearly was a place that the Labour Party did well. Um, Chern, just something that's come to mind. Do you think given what happened in 2019, this is a, a better result than we have been giving them credit for? Because a lot of people were afraid that Labour were going to repeat 2019 and they didn't. So do you think they should be given plaudits for that? Or do you think that is just... Um, or do you think that is an unfair assessment of where the situation was for them? I think that's a very difficult question to answer because I think this time around Labour did run a smarter campaign, but whether they, but the problem I have is that even if you know they they get seventy six seats, it's just a bare majority. And if you look at the last periods in which Labour have come into office, they've often come in with a buffer, and we know that. Most first-term governments in Australia lose seats when they run for an election in three years' time. The reality is, is that although the coalition is quite far away from government, Labour itself is not in a position where it can have any buffer to lose seats and majority government itself. So I just wonder that, yes, I think, I think there's more a sense of relief within Labour politics that they have gotten over the line. But the challenge remains for them is to try and consolidate that base, really. And I'm just not so sure that, to me, I see this as a big victory for the party. I think I texted you on election night that I think Labour are winners because they are back in government and they can implement some of the changes they want. But I don't see them as the biggest winners out of this election. And I think for a gov party that's heading into government, not being seen as biggest winners, I think that's a story in itself. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you there that Labour aren't the biggest winners of this election. And as you said, they're potentially even a couple of by-elections away from losing the majority if they do indeed get 76. And whilst that probably won't change the government calculus, it will um, change the fact that um, they will probably have to negotiate on a more frequent basis with other parties across the floor. And they do have friends in Parliament, but it's much more difficult for these parties to have to negotiate with other people than be able to rely on your own party's caucus. So I think that is a difficulty for the party as well. Yeah, I, I definitely think Labour could be a few by-elections away from losing uh, government. But I, I should note that by-elections in a federally, because of three-year terms, they haven't produced... I, I think it's more like in the coalition side to see by-elections as some of those ministers who, who have spent nine years in government or those that have been around parliament a lot leave parliament in an attempt to refresh the party and we'll talk about the coalition's difficulties um, a little bit later but I, I thought Sam at this stage I'll give you some demographic factors about what are in my opinion are some of the key victories to Labour. Now let's take a look at education. Now if we break down by education we can, uh, we can see this is percentage of the electorate that has uh, a tertiary education, university education, we can see that uh, with at 25% plus, so, uh, sorry, let me just repeat, let's not use education, that's a bad example. Um, let's, let's look at some of the demographic factors. So I, I have here the median weekly income, which is between $500 and $649 Australian dollars, 
the Labour vote, number of seats that Labour held went backwards from nine to seven seats, which I think is very interesting. The coalition gained one from 17 to 18, and the crossbench have one seat. But among 800 to 1,249, so we're looking at the higher percentile, Labour went from 17 seats to 23 seats. The coalition, and this is a story in itself, went from 24 seats to nine. So the majority of this Labour victory was not only built in Western Australia, it was also built on high income voters, which I think is very interesting. And it, it kind of shows you really, we've seen this in the United Kingdom where progressive politics have been doing a lot better in many cities, in many uh, more educated and more uh, high, more wealthy areas. And I think that instead on income suggests that certainly Labour has performed much better in higher income areas than it has done in the past, which I think has further proved that traditional politics has been upended, isn't it, Sam? Yeah, it's interesting because in our preview episode, we were talking about the potential of some changing of the guard moments in this election where we might see the Liberals making inroads into some traditional rural, more um, suburban Labour heartlands and then the Labour absolutely racking up seats in inner metropolitan areas. But I don't necessarily see in these results that the Liberals have been able to do that fully within Labour areas, where we definitely see that Labour has managed to um, make huge inroads in inner metropolitan areas, which basically have won them this election because they didn't manage to win seats in any other area. I mean, look at Tasmania, where we were expecting at least a few seats to be on the table in Tasmania. Well, Tasmania actually swung towards the coalition. So it has told an interesting picture and not necessarily the picture we were expecting it to show. Well, yes, and you talk about the seat of Bass, where you said that if Labour was to have a good night, taking Bass would be step one. Well, Bridget Archer, the Liberal member, has created history. She's become the second member since 1993 to win re-election itself. And I think that is showing that the politics are, is changing, really, because Bass is a more regional seat, more working class seat located in the north of the state. And I think that uh, Bridget Archer has, um, over the particular last two years, shown her independence when necessary from the coalition. So, for example, she crossed the floor over the federal in setting out a federal integrity commission, something the Liberals promised in 2019 but failed to deliver. Bridget Archer also abstained from voting for the coalition cashless debit card, arguing that it was a punitive measure. And she also was one of the Liberals who crossed the floor when the religious discrimination bill had come out in the dying days of the 46th Parliament. So I think in that case, it shows you that good local representation can make the difference in a tight election like this. And I think Bass shows you that what the power of being an effective local member that is willing to stand up to the party leadership, what that could bring in a marginal seat campaigner. So I think that could be very interesting moving forward. Yeah, and I think maybe talking about the seat of Bass is a nice moment to transition to talk about the coalition because they had a very different night to the Labour Party. Yes, and we did should talk about the coalition. But Sam, before we before we before we dive into analysis, I would like to because the coalition is an amalgamation of several component parts. And I think that breakdown of the coalition, I think, tells in itself its own story. 
So the coalition is considered for three components who have one seat. The Liberals who fight in Western Australia, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania. The Liberal National Party who only fights in Queensland. And they are a combination of the Liberals and the Nationals who primarily fight in New South Wales and Victoria. Um, and um, so of those component parts, the Nationals who have 10 seats, which is no change, the LNP, the Liberal Nationals, who have 21 seats, which is down two. And the damage has been done by the Liberals, who will now only have 26 seats, and that's down 16 from the last election. So, Sam, let's start with that first. The Liberals have taken a big hit in this election, haven't they? So who caused them more problems? Do you think it's the Labour Party or the Teal Independents? Yeah, it's, I'm glad that you you talked about that breakdown because one of the things I was going to mention later is that if you look across the board in this election in terms of overall swings, there are very f- few areas where the Liberal, where the coalition at all, of the, any of the component parts had positive swings in their direction. However, the Nationals did. The Nationals um, did have quite a few areas where they did have positive swings against them. I think in order to answer your first question, I think it was the independents who caused a bigger problem, even if the seat count doesn't necessarily tell you that story, because the the um, there were 20 seats, 20 liberal, 20 seats that changed hands in this election. 11, 11 of them changed seats between the two big blocks, and nine of them went green or independent. So in terms of the raw seat count, the Labour to coalition did cause a bigger problem. However, I think the independents caused a bigger problem going forward because it was the independents that denied the coalition even the opportunity to compete for government in this election because had there have just been transfer between the Labour and and coalition, the coalition would have been much closer to being able to form a government than they actually are. But the number of seats they lost to independents made that completely out of the question because it just brought them too many seats short of forming an overall government. And some of these independent victories really sting for the party because they took out cabinet ministers, they took out Josh Frydenberg, who, in addition to being the treasurer of Australia, was also seen as the heir apparent of the coalition in its entirety as a potential future leader of the bloc. And whether they take more seats than the Labour Party or not, which in this case they didn't, the impact of their victories, I think, is much stronger because the Lab- the coalition are used to losing seats to the Labour Party. It's one of the co- one of the common denominators of every single election that is fought in Australia is that seats change hands between the coalition and the Labour Party. But this time, the number of seats they lost to local independents who are much trickier to beat because there's not a known equation of how to beat people who are winning elections off the back of climate issues or more specifically being local candidates and local issues, which for a national campaign group is just very difficult to to deal with and will require a lot of resources to dislodge them. And we saw in terms of Warringah that these independents sometimes can bed themselves in and even imp- improve on their performance from the last election, which happened to Zali Stegel in Warringah um, after she defeated Tony Abbott in 2019. So I think the independents are a bigger problem because of the what looking forwards, um, because the coalition can always win seats off the Labour Party, but 
it's a much lesser known equation on how to win seats back from independence. Absolutely. I, I can't disagree with you there. And the coalition's main damage was done in metropolitan Australia. I can tell you that if we look at the coalition itself, coming into this election, 49.4% or nearly half of the seats were from metropolitan areas. As of now, after this election, only 32.2% of their seats they hold are from metropolitan areas. So that is a dramatic fall, really, in coalition representation in metro areas, particularly in the inner metro areas. Labour in inner metro areas gained six seats from 25 to 31. The cross branch, and this is where the independence comes in, went from three seats to 10 seats. And the coalition went from 16 seats in the inner metropolitan areas to four. They lost 12 seats in the inner metropolitan areas, five to independents, five to Labour, and two to the Greens. So yes, that's where the majority of the damage was done. And again, it's in those well-heeled voters because highly educated voters who potentially, as you said, income, I just stated the income figure earlier. I will now tell you what the education, um, if you break it down by education, I can tell you that with, if, if you grade those who have less than uh, who have a bachelor's degree in, in areas where less than 10% of electorate have a bachelor's degree, the coalition won, lost one seat and Labour gained one seat. In areas with 25% or more that have a bachelor's degree, the coalition held 15 seats. They now only have four. The Labour Party of 11 have gone up to 14 and the independence and crossbench went up from two to 10. So this election was lost in well-heeled, well-educated areas in the inner metropolitan areas. And one of those seats is Kuyong, which is Josh Frydenberg's seat as well. You know, I did think that Goldstein nearby would fall, but to actually see the treasurer, deputy leader of the party, and tooted off as the next leader of the, of the Liberal Party, potentially next prime minister, go down, I think this is just a huge upset. And he, owned, and what I find interesting is that they broke down Kuyong because Josh Frydenberg reportedly spent $2 million defending his seat unsuccessfully. But the Western End electorate of Richmond um, swung heavily to his challenger, Monique Ryan, who won 50% of the primary vote there. And on the more well-heeled sub suburbs um, towards the Eastern side, Josh Frydenberg held on. The key difference in Kuyong, which I think tells you the big difference is that in those in the eastern half of the suburbs where eastern half of the electorate where uh, the Liberal Party won, the average median age was 42 years of age, around their early 40s. In and and crucially, 25% were renters. In the eastern half, uh, sorry, in the western half, closer to the CBD, nearly 50% are renters. And the median age was 32. So this is a revolt amongst the young as well. I don't think that could be discounted either. Do you think that the coalition weren't doing enough to combat this independent threat? Do you think they didn't take it as seriously as it actually ended up being? I think they did, but they, by the time they, they realised this, that the threat, they were, it was just frankly too late. And I actually do wonder whether the thought experiment is that it often takes independence time and resources to build up money. And we know that Simon Holmes Accord of Climate 200 Advocacy Group poured in a lot of money into many seats to knock off so-called moderate liberals. And I wonder if this election was called a year ago when the government was traveling well after its first initial handling of the COVID pandemic, whether this would be a different result? Because at that stage, I don't think the independents had time to build out a profile and Josh Frydenberg himself was seen as a 
And, and the government itself was in the nose in Victoria and it was notable the primary vote loss 4% down. And, and, he, and I think that it was just a combination of them realizing too late that in many of what is considered blue liberal seats, that, that, the, that this, their vote was a lot softer and they just realized it way too late for them to do anything about it. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of merit to that argument. And also in the coverage of the election, when it was revealed in various polls, and then we had that MLP poll from YouGov, where it looked like the independents were capable of winning those seats. I think that gave the independent movement a lot of momentum around the country, because we were talking about Goldstein, we were talking about North Sydney, we were talking about Kuyong, but we weren't talking about seats like Curtin, which completely... Oh, um, beyond people's expectations, ended up being going from one of be, being one of the safest seats for the Liberals in Perth to a fifteen percent swing towards Independent Kate Cheney, which I think tells you all you need to know about how much momentum the Independent movement gained across the country. Because we had some seats where we thought, yeah, these are probably going to go to the Teal Independents, but I think we ended up with quite a few more seats than we were that were than were on our radar. Well, I think you, I'm very glad you mentioned Curtin because I think that points to wider things about the Liberal Party, that the Liberal Party has lost its base, particularly among professionals and in particular professional women because the two, I would like to bring up both Curtin and Wentworth. Curtin is, was uh, Kate Cheney, you said, won in Curtin. This was a seat represented by former Deputy Liberal Leader uh, Julie Bishop. I remember in 2016, she had a 25% margin in two elections, that has completely been wiped away. And Wentworth, who was the leader at the time, Malcolm Turnbull, heading to the 2016 election, a Lego Spender award. What I think is very interesting is that in both these seats, two women are, you know, both their parents were liberal ministers. And yet the children themselves, and so this is liberal royalty we're talking about. They're in Allegra Spender, Carla Zamponi, the fashion designer was her mother, and her father was a former liberal minister. Kate Cheney's father was Fred Cheney, a former deputy leader of the party itself. This is liberal royalty seat and liberal personnel who you would think be part of the liberal party, but have won the seats independent, Sam. Now, Sam, I thought I'll use this point to give you a good quiz question at this point, which I would love to hear your answer by. Let's take away Scott Morrison, and who is outgoing liberal leader, and the presumptive new leader, Peter Dutton. There had been 11 Liberal leaders in the past. As of now, after this election, how many of these 11 Liberal, it, because obviously they represent the seats in the lower house, how many of those lower house, house seats are currently held by Liberals? I know that John Howard's seat fell, so I'm, I'm tempted to say one? One is the answer, and that is the seat of Warnon. The rest of them, Kuyong, Higgins, Reed, Bruce, Warringa, all have now are no longer within the Liberal Party. So this is the culmination, I think, of a couple of years. I suspect starting with the gay marriage plebiscite, where the Liberals were seen as dragging their feet, that this is the revolt of pure Liberal heartland. And as we know, Sam, as Labour in the UK have tried to regain their heartland, it does take a lot of effort, a lot of blood, sweat and tears, and it's not a short-term fix to that, isn't it? No, it isn't. And... Chen, this is a good opportunity for me to ask you, based on a discussion we had earlier in this podcast, but also in the previous one, do you think there are any good signs for the coalition in terms of future elections? Are there any indications where we think 
there is a demographic shift towards the Liberals that didn't pay dividends this time around, but is certainly trending into in the right direction for next time? I think that's a very interesting question. Um, I think in, in some ways that is, Tasmania is the big one. You brought out uh, the seat of, we, we talked about the seat of Bass, which Bridget Archer was able to beat the so-called eject the seat nature of that of tossing out every single MP. But I think some of the other seats are really interesting as well. In nearby Braddon, for example, which is also the other seat that was gained by the Liberal Party in 2019, the Liberals got a 5% swing to them in that electorate, which I find very interesting. And Lyons is the big one to watch. That was uh, a seat uh, which is currently, although held by Labour, the Labour MP there, Brian Mitchell, had a squeaker of election night and scraped in with uh, 450.5% two-party preferred, suffering a 5% swing against them. So I think the Liberal Party is moving more out to the outer suburban and regional areas as well. Lingiari, for example, that big rural seat in the Northern Territory, that saw uh, 51-49% uh, uh, hell for Labour, but 4% swing against that. And I think the other interesting thing to me is that although they lost two seats, Queensland itself has shown that it's very much a coalition state. They only lost, they lost two seats all in the inner metro. But to me, it was telling that Longman didn't fall, Petrie didn't fall, you know, in the coal seats of, you know, Capricornia, Flynn, all these spectacular increases in margin, they all stayed with the coalition this time around. So I think where the Liberals and the Nationals would potentially aim at are in those outers, um, in those much more rural seats as well. And that could be very interesting indeed. For example, in Hunter, there was a negligible swing to the ALP mm. in an election which absolutely where the government was very much on the nose. I think to me, that is the story, much more in outer suburban rural areas. But I think the picture is a bit mixed because the reality is, is that this was a 12-year-old government. So I think the next election could be very interesting as well particularly McEwen, because I noted that in the last day itself, uh, Scott Morrison uh, went to uh, McEwen on the last day. Well, unfortunately, on the primary vote itself, the Liberals went back by 2%, even though there's a 2% swing on two-party preferred. But I think that there are opportunities in those outer suburbs, but it's going to be difficult for the party in this election because it was a 12-year-old government. What about you, Sam? Do you see any other areas, or have I broadly covered them? You've broadly covered most of the ones I was talking about, that I was thinking about, um, mainly being Tasmania being an exception in this election. Um, I'm glad you brought up Hunter because, as you said, I think having a negligible swing towards the ALP in an election which was very much in the ALP's direction suggests that seats like Hunter, as we alluded to in the preview, might be ones that are trending towards the coalition's column. Um, I think Gilmore is another indication of where things are heading because Gilmore looks like it's probably going to flip to the um, the, the coalition. Um, and yes, there are some local factors there because Andrew Constance is a, a well-known figure in the state and has been attempting to get into federal politics for a few, um, well, sort of attempting to get into federal politics for a few cycles now. Um, and it looks like that might be part of the story there. But Patterson and Gilmore were the only New South Wales seats that had any kind of measurable swing towards the Liberal Party. And we see that in Gilmore, it might not even be enough. So 
in both of these cases, in an election where the Labour Party were doing quite well federally, they did see swings towards the Liberal Party. So in an election where the Liberal Party are doing well, um, this might see bigger swings and might see more seats like Patterson and Gilmore tumble into the coalition column. But I think for you, I think, as you said, it's it's a very difficult picture to read for for the coalition because they sort of have two big problems to sort out because yes they might be trending positively in in seats like hunter patterson gilmore but then on the flip side they lost seats in queensland to the green party so not even a, a party that they're used to losing seats to in any way at all and then you're also losing seats on the other hand to the independents as well for very different reasons so even if you're stockpiling some of these seats in um, more rural areas from the Labour Party, you need that to offset the losses you're facing on the other side for very different reasons in more metropolitan or suburban areas. So they're kind of on a on a win-lose situation where you might gain seats like Hunter, but for every Hunter, there's a Brisbane, or for every Hunter there is a Kuyong, or for every Hunter, there is a Curtin, which is a surprise. So I I think it is a difficult calculus for the coalition where there are positive signs, but in order for those positive signs to actually reap rewards, they need to be winning back these other seats. So all in all, a difficult story. I agree. It's a difficult story for the coalition. But one thing I think that's been slightly talked about in the media, but it's also one they had to reconnect with, is that there are some seats, I'm going to read you the list, and I'm going to tell you the swings, and I want you to guess what the, the, the connection between these seats are. So Bennelong, we saw an 8% swing. Barton, 6%. Mitchell, 7.5%. Reed, 8 uh, Chisholm, 7% swing. Menzies, 6%. Uh, and this is in New South Wales and Victoria. Not teal seats, but what is the link, do you think, Sam, that links all those that could also ex- what ex- suggest what the coalition has to do as well? I'm not particularly sure. Well, I can tell you that in all those seats, compared to national average, there was a higher percentage of people of Chinese ancestry. And one thing that happened in this last term of parliament was that the government went very hard against national security and took a strong position against China. Now, it was always tried to say that it was against the Chinese Communist Party rather than against China. But I think that it was a bit of a complicated message for to distinguish in certain parts of the electorate. And I think that the coalition, like in Canada in 2021, paid for that in some of these seats in the Conservatives in 2021 in Canada, paid for that. And I think that to me, that also is a policy thing that they have to consider how to reconnect in some of these seats with them because Bennelong was John Howard's seat and I think that the, not only it was John Howard former prime minister high percent ethnic populations I think that, that seat trying to connect with them is particularly key indeed I mean I've just realized we've talked about so many different things that went wrong for the coalition or so many different types of demographics that they lost in this election if you were leading the recovery from this election, what would you say is should be the main focus of the of the party going forwards? Because we've talked about um, inner metropolitan areas, we've talked about um, losing seats to Teal Independence, to the Green Party, to Labour in some of its former heartland seats, and also not doing enough to win some of these Labour seats. So, w- what should be the focus of the coalition? Well, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? Um, 
I don't think that's a simple answer because unfortunately, the message to appeal to those in, to the independents and to a lesser extent the Greens who gain seats in, in the metropolitan areas on climate change is very different if you want to win outer suburban and um, outer uh, a regional seats. It was a problem the Labour Party had dealt with. And I wonder now whether moving forward, whether we need the a sort of third party on the right-hand side of politics that could help like the Greens role to Labour, where they can help deliver the floor preferences to Labour, but also provide a useful outlet for some kind of differentiation and appeal to those. But I don't think that's a co conversation the coalition wants to have, because it's tacitly acknowledging that they're going to have to lose part of their, one of their base, really. And I don't think that they want to have that. So frankly, I wouldn't want to be the next Liberal leader and try and square that circle, frankly. How, mm. what, what, any tips for the new Liberal leader, Sam? Well, I guess the one saving grace for them is this wasn't a Labour blowout. So it wasn't a poor coalition performance combined with an astonishing Labour victory. So if if we kind of assume that the Labour Party going to the next election are probably at the moment favoured to lose seats if we go by previous Australian elections. So I guess the mountain to climb is not insurmountable. Um, but for me, it's just you're just balancing too many different outlooks because as we talked about with 2019 the Labour Party had a huge problem because it was talking about climate to try and gain suburban seats which in turn made them lose seats in states like Queensland as well and if the Liberal Party start going down that route then you're going to see even more seats become um, a problem for them than were, than were a problem this time around but I think this is a nice opportunity turn to talk about those third party groups as a final way to wrap up this election. And I want to start by just asking a bigger question, which do these results indicate that Australia is becoming more of a multi-party system? I can't see anything other than a yes to that question, because we now have a situation where both Labour and the coalition got roughly a third in the primary vote. OK, the Liberals were slightly higher, but... The one in three Australians on a primary vote did not vote for a major party. And I, and I, and I just think that that is a showing that it's a multi, becoming a multi-party system. Now, obviously, with preferential voting, that does mask the seat loss in some ways because you, in the end, you have to number a major party at some point on your ballot paper. But nonetheless, I think moving forward, there could be a reckoning in some diehard Labour seats that the coalition suffered in this election. And I point to the seat of Fowler. Now, Fowler was uh, a seat held by the outgoing Labour MP, Chris Hayes. He retired with a 14% margin. Quite healthy, but that seat has been lost because Labour in this election tried to parachute in former New South Wales Premier, Christina Keneally, to try and solve a problem they had in the Senate ticket. And Christina Keneally, who was a Shadow Home Affairs Minister and was probably tipped for a high-profile role in the new Albanese government, spectacularly lost a seat to independent candidate Dai Lee. And it's a similar sort of thing of, you know, a party ignoring its base, in this case, parachuting a white woman into a seat where 20% of the population was of Vietnamese descent. And I think that that could be a very interesting Thing of a problem Labour has to think about is to try and not suffer what the coalition has in the well-heeled educated suburbs in inner metropolitan states and in those multicultural communities in Western Sydney, in Melbourne, that they that could be a potential problem here. I also looked to Werriwa, 
as a potential warning sign for Labour because in that seat, which was held by former Labour leader Mark Latham at one point, Anne Stanley, although held her vote, she suffered an 8% fall in a primary vote in an election where Labour uh, went, um, in an election where Labour won government. So I think Labour itself has to be careful of potential problems in its backyard, um, which could pose a problem the coalition is currently forming, seeing in order to form another majority government. Do you agree with that analysis, Sam? Yeah, I um I do agree with that analysis. And I guess in my answer to this multi-party question, the only thing I would point out is that whilst the Climate 200 candidates do seem to have some sort of similarity in apparatus, I just wonder whether if, if Australia were moving more towards a multi-party system, it wouldn't be grounded in lots of big swings to local independence because that's much more difficult to replicate going forward because if it's based on an, the appeal of an individual, well, once that individual is no longer standing in that constituency, then what happens? Um, and in order for Australia to truly move towards being a multi-party system, I would expect multiple seats to fall towards parties that are that are popular for their party brand rather than the brand of an individual. And I just wonder if that's maybe where we're heading more towards in Australia is that it's maybe more of a temporary thing based in candidates, but I may be proven wrong. And I, I wonder, Chen, do you think they are temporary? Is this what is this a one election phenomenon? Or do you think we will see these teal independents back in action in three years time winning multiple seats again? Well, uh, the problem for that is that there are many low-hanging fruit, potentially. And I think there are some areas you might not necessarily expect, like Cowper and Bradfield is potentially... Uh, and I'll talk about a bit about Bradfield later on. But I think in, in many ways that there is more potential for the Teal independence, given the fact they had phenomenal success this time around. But the reality is, is that I think right now is that they are currently very much in inner metro and in some country seats like Indi, for example, where Helen Hayes massively increased her margin again. They, the Where they haven't made a mark is in those marginal seats or in suburban seats. And I think for them, if they can manage to break into these areas, that will be a new ground and a new area to go for. So currently, where independence had done previously well in the past is in those big uh, rural seats or now in, in a metro. The suburb is clearly the next biggest threat. But Sam, when we talk about independence, we are talking about independence, but let's talk about the Greens because you and I didn't really talk about the Greens last time around. But I think right now, our analysis of them has to be certainly calibrated and they're going to be a much bigger force, particularly, surprisingly, of all places in Queensland. So what happened there, you think? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we did talk about the fact that Queensland, or particularly Brisbane, would be one of those areas we'd be paying attention to in terms of the Green Party's performance, because they were hoping to gain, for sure, the seat of Brisbane, which has just officially fallen into their column this morning. But um, I don't think we were particularly expecting them to basically wipe out any other party representation in the city of Brisbane and its surrounding areas. So I thought that was a big result for the Greens. What, what did interest me, though, is that the Greens didn't seem to threaten the Labour Party outside of that area, which I found very curious because you would have thought in an election which seemed to polarise against 
um, the two major parties sort of across the board in terms of the independent rise, the rise of Greens in, in the Brisbane area. It didn't seem to particularly pose a problem for them anywhere else. So I was a bit curious about that. But um, it did seem to be that, particularly in Brisbane, the green energy that was replicated in the teal independence in other areas seemed to be in the Brisbane area for the Greens and against both the Liberal Party and the Labour Party. And in the Labour Party's case, it took out Shadow Environment Minister Terry Butler. So the other, another, so that's interesting as well. Well, there's one big reason why the Greens did very well in Queensland and nowhere else. Simply because in Ryan, Brisbane and Griffith, the three seats they gained, there were no teal independents. And that's why. So if you were a climate change voter who cared a lot about climate change and didn't think that Labour did enough, there was only one other place to go, which was the Green. So I think to me, it shows you that this was a climate change election in inner metropolitan seats, and it blew the coalition out and to a lesser extent damaged Labour itself. So again, that is, I, I think that is the biggest reason. We should note as well that the, the newly elected Green MP, uh, Stephen Bates, um, also used very innovative campaign techniques. Of, um, he advertised some of his campaign on Grinder. Because as you know, Grindr has geolocation uh, as part of it. But I, I think you're right. The Greens will play. Don't, don't add it in. Take, cut that out. I thought, I thought it was, uh, but I thought that that was a particularly interesting story. And it shows you that Greens crossbench was certainly made for an interesting 47th parliament. Time is fast running out, Sam, on what has been a fascinating discussion of, uh, of the Australian election, which we could go on for more. But I, I thought we should end with a question we asked in our preview is that if there is one Labour seat and one Liberal seat that told the story of election 2022, what is it and why? So I actually picked three seats to tell the three stories I'm, I, I was talking about way at the beginning of the podcast. First seat I picked is um, the limited, is to, something to represent the limited Labour gains, the narrow Labour victory, which is the seat of Bass, which we've already talked about, because I thought the failure to capture a seat that has flip-flopped basically every time since 1993 was was one of the reasons that capped off the Labour advances in Australia in this election and made it so that they could only really stretch to 76 seats, it seems, as a maximum at this stage. And it seemed to be that the Labour Party, the energy behind the Labour Party was not enough to propel them to an overwhelming victory and was enough for Liberal candidates like the Liberal candidate in Bass to manage to hold on, even if the tide of history was against her being able to do that. So that was my Liberal seat. My Labour seat was the seat of Tangney, again, another one we've already spoken about in this podcast, but I thought it illustrated how Labour was able to, despite not being able to pick up seats like Bass, get into government. And it was a classic example of an inner metropolitan seat that in this election seemed to swing overwhelmingly towards the Labour Party. It's been held by the Liberals in every election since 1983 and was won in this case on a swing of 11.5%. And I think it both illustrates how strong the Labour performance was in Western Australia, which is a big talking point of this election, but also the kind of seats that Labour were able to win to get them over the line. So that's that one. And the final one I'm going to talk about is the seat of Curtin. Again, one we've already spoken about, but I think was an illustration of how badly the Liberals were doing against Teal Independence and why 
regardless of the Labour performance, they were never in the driving seat to form the next government, which is it was the safest seat in Perth for the Liberals and was won on a 15% swing by the Independents and was one of those seats that was not really on the radar in the advance of this election but was one that really finally stuck the knife into the Liberal Party and just prevented them from even beginning to be part of the conversation to form the next government. So those are my three. What about you, Chern? I'm going to cheat and also do three as well. But before that, I should note, uh, one, the first seat is Benelong. Again, we talked about, you know, a seat held by a former prime minister, high ethnic minority, uh, Chinese population there, uh, and... Also, the last time it was won by Labour was for a single term in 2007, the last time it won majority government. So I think that in one seat, it tells you so many stories of the election 2022. And I find fascinating, Sam, that now, right now, with the loss of Benelong, North Sydney, Wentworth, uh, Reed, the Liberal Party hold no seats in Sydney Harbour. And all the seats that border that, they hold zero, which I think is a story in itself. Really, it's it's just been a total wipeout of the of in metropolitan areas in Melbourne in Adelaide. They are now only one seat, which is Sturt itself. Amazingly, Perth one seat, and in Melbourne, or potentially only three. So this has been a total wipeout in metropolitan areas. The second seat I would like to bring out is the seat of Bradfield. We haven't talked about this. It's held by the communications minister, um, outgoing communication minister Paul Fletcher. And it shows you the power of the Teal independence and the threat they potentially hold in the next election. This seat, since it was formed in 1972, has never been won by the, apart from any other party, apart from the coalition. Paul Fletcher has lost 15% of his primary vote. And not only that, has saw a 12% swing against him and reduced its margin to only 4% or so. So a danger sign for the coalition. The final seat is a danger sign for the Labour Party. The seat we haven't talked about is the seat of Colwell in Victoria. Safe Labour seat. It was won by 62% by Maria Vamikino, who has been there since 2001 and who had 62% two-party preferred. But interestingly, has lost 10% of her primary vote here and saw an 8% swing against her in absolutely safe Liberal Labour territory. It's never been held by any other party apart from Labour, since it was formed in 1984. So although Labour would be celebrating, Sam, I'm sure you agree that over the next three years, it's got a lot of work to do in order to ensure that it doesn't suffer the same fate as the Liberal Party has in it. Absolutely. And we know from Australian politics, with having these terms of just three years, that we won't be long before they start gearing up for the next election campaign around the corner. And we have some certainly very interesting state elections coming up across Australia when we try and further analyse whether these kind of trends are things that are going to transcend all levels of Australian politics. Um, so we'll certainly be having an interesting ride and I'm sure it won't be the last time in the next uh, few months and years that we're talking about Australia before the next federal election. No, it isn't. And actually, we'll be back with another podcast very soon once Albanese announces who his full ministry is and who Peter Dutton, the next leader of the Liberal Party, announces his shadow ministry. So do keep out a look for that. But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballots to Talk About. Do join us again next week when we're reviewing the results from Colombia's presidential election and the regional election in Ontario. And as always, we'll bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at underscore talk. And do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han. 
And until next time, we will speak to you soon. <laughs>